The American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. This is Jacob Yasha Schneider, editor of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, welcoming you to the American Thoracic Society's podcast. I would like to introduce our editorial board member, Dr. Nathan Sim of the Section of Pulmonary Critical Care Medicine at the Veterans Affairs Hospital in Washington, D.C. He is an assistant professor of medicine at George Washington University and conducts translational research on biomarkers of inflammation and coagulation in ARDS and sepsis. Welcome, Dr. Sim. Thanks, Yasha. In today's podcast, I'm joined by Jurgen Vespo and John Hurst to discuss a paper by Dr. Peter Lang, Dr. Vespo, and their colleagues entitled Prediction of the Clinical Course of COPD Using the New Gold Classification, a Study of the General Population. This was published in the November 15, 2012 American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Vespo is Professor of Respiratory Medicine, Odense University Hospital, University of Southern Denmark, and a member of the Respiratory Research Group Manchester Academic Health Sciences Center, Manchester, UK. Dr. Hurst is Senior Lecturer at UCL Respiratory Medicine, London, United Kingdom. Thank you both for joining me today. Dr. Vespo, as the Chair of the Science Committee of the Global Initiative for Chronic Obstructive Lung Disease, or GOLD, I'd ask you to please take a moment to describe GOLD for our listeners. Yes, thank you. I'll be happy to. GOLD was something that was established in 2001 where there was this belief that it would be good to have a global strategy for combating COPD. Actually, at that time, there wasn't very much in relation to guidelines or other things, so gold was sort of quite pioneering. It has then been a strategy document that has been published every year. It's annually updated, and it's always been the plan that every five years there would be a revision where you wouldn't just update it with literature from the last year, but actually sort of review the whole field. And in 2011, we did the second revision, and we thought that at that stage, there was sufficient literature to change the tack slightly, so that the present gold strategy document is actually somewhat different from where it started in 2001. It's not a guideline, because I don't think you can do a global guideline. Guidelines are for countries or regions, but it's a strategic document setting out where we are and how we think you could strategically use COPD and come up with ways of managing it. Dr. Vespo, your study evaluates outcomes based on comparing the prior 2006 GOLD stratification to the recent update of GOLD describing severity of COPD. As you well know, the new version is more complex. Please describe how and why the stratification system was revised between 2006 and 2011. Yes, I think the main reason was that the evidence we had for managing COPD no longer fitted with a more simple concept where COPD was simply staged on the basis of FEV1. We had gold stages relating to cutoffs in the FEV1% of predicted. But actually, a lot of the treatments that we apply they relate to reducing risk of exacerbations. And the other thing was that we did not really want to affect lung function as such. We wanted to affect the consequences of having low lung function, which is symptoms. So we thought that with the management we had available, 
it was time to leave a paradigm that was built on FEV1 alone and go into symptoms, lung function, and exacerbations as being the things that would determine how we would stratify and subsequently manage patients. So we thought we actually had to complicate it slightly to make it fit with the evidence which is now available for management. Dr. Vespo, could you please explain how the new 2011 gold classification grades are made utilizing risk and either the MRC or CAT score to measure symptoms? Yes, I think the approach is different from the previous one. And I think briefly you could say that we score patients in two dimensions. We score them on symptoms and we score them on risk. So what we think or how we vision you meet your patient is that you find out whether the patient has few symptoms or many symptoms. And the idea is that if you have a low grade of breathlessness or you have a low score on the CAT, the COVD assessment test, then you have few symptoms. And if you have an MRC score of two or more or a high CAT score and we said that's 10 or more, then you have many symptoms. So we divide patients first in future symptoms and many symptoms. We then subsequently divide them according to risk. And we basically say that you are at high risk of having exacerbations if you have either two exacerbations or more per year in the years previously, or if you have an FEV1 less than 50% of predicted. So either one of those will score you as having a high risk of exacerbations and the way you can then only be scored as having low risk of exacerbation is if you have both an FEV1 above 50% of predicted and no exacerbation last year or perhaps one exacerbation last year. So we end up with two dimensions and they're both dichotomous. So we end up with four patients type. We have the grade A. Those are the patients with few symptoms and low risk. We also have patients with low risk but high symptoms, and they are the ones we classify as B patients. In the high-risk patient population, we have those with few symptoms. They are classified as C patients, and we have those who have both a high risk and many symptoms, and they are classified B. Now, in our classification, we have said this is not a very strict way of dividing patients. You may not, as a physician, use the MRC scale or the CAT score. You may have other ways, but we want to maintain the concept of splitting patients in those with few symptoms, those with many symptoms, and then subsequently according to risk. Because we believe that this way of splitting in four groups will be informative in the approach we will take to manage the patient. So before we get into the current study, I'd like to ask Dr. Hurst to provide some further background for our listeners. So what treatments for COPD currently improve outcome in hard endpoints, such as frequency of exacerbations or hospitalization and mortality? And as a follow-up, I'd ask you about the prior 2006 gold stratification and what, if any, impact they might have had on treatment of COPD and clinical trials related to the treatment of COPD. 
Thanks. So, I mean, we could think about mortality first. And if we're thinking about things that reduce mortality in COPD, then the most important thing that I can say is smoking cessation. That has to be the most important intervention because that's applicable to the broad range of patients with COPD. The only other things that have really been shown in clinical trials to reduce mortality apply to smaller subgroups of patients. So you could think about long-term oxygen therapy for patients who meet the criteria for that. And if you're suitable in terms of the pulmonary rehabilitation and distribution of your disease, then lung volume reduction surgery may well improve mortality as well. So those are three things that we know improve mortality, smoking cessation, long-term oxygen and volume reduction. And then, of course, the jury is really out still on pharma trials because signals haven't quite reached statistical significance. You might think that that's something that's important because we know, and I'll explain in a second, that uh, pharmaceutical trials certainly reduce exacerbations. And since exacerbations cause some of the mortality, it's certainly not implausible. Uh, But in terms of an absolute mortality signal from a pharmaceutical intervention, we're still waiting to see that definitively in studies at the moment. So thinking about exacerbations then, then there are certainly lots of those um, and lots of different interventions which can reduce exacerbations. I suppose you could divide them into pharmacological and non-pharmacological. Non-pharmacological, you'd certainly think about uh, the multi-professional exercise and education classes that we call pulmonary rehabilitation. And there's a whole range of pharmaceutical classes that have been shown to reduce exacerbation frequency either alone or in combination. Uh, chiefly inhalers, so we'd be thinking about long-acting beta agonists, uh, long-acting antimuscarinics, inhaled corticosteroids, uh, and then some other classes too, so phosphodiesterase inhibitors, for example. So we've got a range of interventions. I think the second thing you asked me was how did the gold classification impact gold treatment? And I think the important thing here is that uh, the large trials which we use for our evidence basis have recruited patients based on FEV1, specific FEV1 cutoffs. And therefore, we've got very good evidence, for example, that drug X works to reduce exacerbations in certain goal stages, and that's usually stage 2 through stage 4. But because this new classification is different, we've not yet really seen any reanalysis of existing pharma data using those criteria, let alone trials that are recruited by those criteria. So actually assessing whether therapy is appropriate for patients with gold C or D, say, we just don't have that data at the moment. Let's get to uh, the current study. Dr. Vespo, can you explain what the objective of your study was? Yes, I think from a goal perspective, it's always interesting to come up with ideas of how to classify patients. But the Gold Science Committee is usually filled up with people who see very severe patients or who work on more basic aspects of the disease. And we thought that we had a database where we could challenge the stratification and where we could actually use longitudinal data to see whether the new classification would perform as well as expected and how it would perform compared to the 2006 version of gold. So we could examine it on real-world data um, selected from Copenhagen and the suburbs of Copenhagen in Denmark. Dr. Vespa, you just alluded to the cohorts that were studied in the current manuscript. The two cohorts were the Copenhagen City Heart and then the Copenhagen General Population Study. Could you please uh, describe these two study groups? Yes, the Copenhagen City Heart Study was actually a prospective study that was modeled on Framingham. And the purpose was to look at cardiovascular risk factors and outcomes. And luckily, there was a spirometry included right from the beginning. And my colleague, Peter Lange, who's the first author of the study, has for years been involved in the subsequent follow-ups and analysis of this cohort. And it took in people between the age of 20 and 80 to begin with. 
and they were sort of slightly age classified so that you would get people in middle age to secure some cardiovascular outcomes. Then as time has gone by and the cohort has been followed for 30 years, then more younger people have been included as well. So it's a dynamic cohort and it's just taken from population census, so it's representative of a city population in Scandinavia, that is from the city of Copenhagen. The other cohort, Copenhagen General Population Study, was set up more or less as a copy, but with the aim of recruiting not 15,000 but 100,000 subjects, and I think we're almost up to 80,000 now. They are recruited from the suburbs of Copenhagen, but the same age range, the same strategy, the battery of tests is more or less the same, which means that apart from spirometry, we also obtain questionnaire data, and we have blood samples, and we have DNA on all these subjects for analysis. Thank you, Dr. Vespo, for describing those two cohorts, and let's talk about the study. What were the inclusion and exclusion criteria for the study? Well, basically, we wanted the population to, in the studies, to be the populations from the two cohorts that had airflow limitation. Now, it was all based on pre-bronchodilator spirometry because in studies of this size and in epidemiology in general, it is not really feasible to do bronchodilatation on all these people. But that is a weakness that's included in all studies. We took people who on pre-bronchodilator spirometry had an FEV1, FEC ratio of less than 0.70, which are the gold criteria for airflow limitation. But we have done analysis where we also looked at the ratio less than lower limit or normal, and it doesn't really change very much. They should not have self-reported asthma, and that is basically that we diagnose asthma by asking people with the weaknesses that's involved in that, but in epidemiology, that's the best you can do. So, Dr. Hurst, Dr. Vespo acknowledged the, uh, unfortunately, the lack of feasibility in this sort of study uh, of bronchodilator spirometry and how it may affect the study. I'd ask what your thoughts were on the the absence of post-bronchodilator spirometry and how that might affect the study findings. So I think Jorgen has uh, covered that, and I would agree uh, with his comments. So whilst the purist in me, of course, would have preferred a post-bronchodilator spirometry measurement for inclusion in the study, because that's the that's a gold standard. In such a large study, it becomes impractical, and uh, I recognize that. So you would like to see it, but um, to perform this sort of study, one has to, I think, accept pre-bronchodilator spirometry. And at the end of the day, I don't think it's going to uh, influence the results in any meaningful way. So Dr. Vespa, what specific endpoints did you study? Well, what we can do in these Danish population studies is that we can link the populations with uh, nationwide registers that we have available for the whole population. So we could link it to mortality. We also have post-specific mortality. We can link it with hospitalization. So one outcome could be what would usually be termed a severe exacerbation, being a hospital admission where the cause was COPD. And then finally, we could look at what is usually labeled as moderate exacerbations, which are the exacerbations that are treated with systemic corticosteroids and antibiotics. Usually, in that category, we would say it was either or. Somebody treated with corticosteroids and or antibiotics. But in our study, we do not know the reason why the people would get these drugs, so we could not use antibiotics alone. They could get 
and say biotics for a vast number of reasons. So we could get information on drug use on corticosteroids, either alone or together with antibiotics. And using that information, we could sort of count exacerbations severe enough to be treated medically, but not severe enough to go to hospital. So summarizing, we had moderate exacerbations, severe exacerbations, mortality, and course-specific mortality. So let's get to the, the results of your study. How did the updated goal classification compare in the way patients were classified relative to the 2006 classification? Specifically, what proportion of patients did you find in the various grades? Yes, I think here it is very important to realize that this is an epidemiological study because, I mean, most clinicians, especially if they were secondary and tertiary care physicians, would see most patients who in the old classification would be gold four or perhaps gold three, and today they will mostly see patients in group B. Now, in the real world, this is very different. Most of the patients, if we use the old classification, would be gold one and gold two, with a minority in gold three and gold four. And subsequently, the same happened when you classify them A, B, C, and D. The vast majority, more or less 80%, are in the group A. And basically, these come from gold one and most of the people from gold two. So basically, you lump gold one and gold two in A, with the exception that already at this stage, some patients are very symptomatic and have a lot of breathlessness. And they got separated out into group B, which contains approximately 15% of the entire population. Now, those in the high-risk groups, C and D, only in total contain 10% of population defined COPD, although they consume so much of the COPD care and they are the ones we see in the hospitals. And somewhat to our surprise, and I think to the surprise of many others, there was the same proportion of patients in C and in D, and that is 5% of the population of COPD patients in each of these groups. Now, these are all, by definition, gold stage three and four from the old classification. What I think is probably surprising is that C and D are equally large, that there are actually as many C patients as there are D patients. I think a lot of physicians would be surprised about this. And I think personally, one of the reasons that we don't see as many C patients in the clinic is that these are the undiagnosed patients who do not have very many symptoms, but just a low lung function. So I think there are some slightly surprising findings. The main one being that we get sorted out 15% of the population who have only mild to moderate airflow limitation, old gold one and gold two, who are actually very symptomatic. And equally, that among those at high risk with low lung function and or a lot of exacerbation, Half of them do not have significant breathlessness. Dr. Hurst, I would like to hear what your thoughts are on the new classification and, and how patients were categorized. My clinical role here is as a secondary and tertiary care physician, so the patients that I see have 
almost exclusively traditionally been goal three and four and uh, it's easy to forget I think sometimes that there's a large proportion of patients with milder disease who may or may not have symptoms who are out there in the community and one of the real strengths about the work from Jürgen and the team is that this is an epidemiological study and it's really looking at the totality of burden of COPD within the community. I'm very interested in the fact that the proportion of patients in the mildest stage is actually increasing. So if you look at the proportion of patients in group A compared to group 1, it's going up, whereas the proportion of B compared to 2 is going down. So the classification change is certainly affecting the way that patients are being subphenotyped, if you like, and uh, the, the exciting thing there is whether or not that relates to therapy, which is something that we were talking about uh, just a few moments ago. As a follow-up, Dr. Russ, I would ask what you think of having more patients categorized into the mildest now would be gold A compared to some of the middle groups. What impact do you think that does have on therapy? It's difficult to answer that question at the moment. I think that the most important intervention um, in patients with COPD has got to be a smoking cessation. Attention to comorbidities is going to be important, and that's relevant whether patients are in gold 1 or gold A all the way through to gold 4 or gold D. Um, so that hasn't changed. At this end of the spectrum, I mean, the concept of treatment for either early disease, uh, in other words, disease that is spirometrically mild at the moment but is likely to progress rapidly, uh, or mild disease, because those two may both be in that category, uh, is really something that we're only just starting to sort out within the community, the concept of disease activity, if you like, compared to the concept of disease severity. And as the evidence for intervening in much milder disease is much less strong, the actual impact of this part in terms of more patients being uh, included into the mildest categories, I think we need to think about that a little bit further. It's not immediately clear what impact that's going to have on therapy, for example. Fair enough. Uh, Dr. Russ, I actually did want also mention in your uh, accompanying editorial, you mentioned that there was a similar study in CHESS, I believe is in press now, describing the updated gold classification in a Spanish cohort. And I was wondering if you could compare how these two studies compared in terms of classifying patients into the various grades. Uh, so that's right, and I think that reflects the wide interest within the wider community about this change in classification status. So it's a hot topic, if you like, in COPD at the moment. Um, so it's an interesting paper. It's very complementary to the one that Jürgen and the team have uh, written. The first author is uh, Joan Soriano, uh, and as you say, it's uh, from Spain. Um, it's different, though, because this is a, a study of patients who are mostly uh, known to secondary care physicians, and therefore they're at a different end of the spectrum for the Copenhagen patients. Uh, in total, there are somewhere over 3,600 patients, most of them are men. I think that's important to point out, uh, and certainly they're more severe. But if you look at what happens when you classify them through uh, A, B, C, D, then a similar sort of polarization is happening. The proportion in group A compared to group 1 is going up, and actually the proportion in group D compared to group 4 is going up, whereas the proportion in the middle, so the Bs and Cs, compared to the 2s and 3s is less. So overall in that cohort, about a third of patients are in Group A, uh, a small similar percentage in B and C between 16 and 18 percent, uh, and then a third of patients again in Group D. So there seems to be a polarization, if you like, towards the extremes of the severity scale when we classify patients in this way. The study from Juan Soriano looked at whether these two systems were able to predict mortality differently from each other, and ultimately the outcome was that uh, they predicted mortality uh, probably to the, to the same degree. Uh, but interestingly, of course, because group C and D, the patients who are described as at risk, can be at risk either because they've got poor lung function, frequent exacerbations, or both, then there are subdivisions between those two groups. And it's possible that uh, we may be just starting to see a mortality difference depending on which of those risk factors, one, the other, or both, 
actually got you there in the first place. So it's an interesting paper which actually provides very complementary data to the data from uh, Jürgen. So, Dr. Vespo, that leads me nicely to my next question regarding your study cohort. How did the updated gold classification compare to the prior classification in your study group in predicting exacerbations as well as mortality? Well, I think we'll take mortality first. And I'll do that because I actually think that is less interesting. It's very rare that you as a clinician sit and manage patient based on a score that will tell you whether they have a higher risk of dying. We do not have very many therapies that can affect mortality. And we actually have indices like the BOLD or the DOSE or the ADO that can predict mortality much better than any management score you can come up with. The reason for classifying patients in gold is not to predict their prognosis, but to find the best management. What we saw when we did look at mortality was that it predicted mortality more or less as the old one, but probably with a slightly surprising finding, at least to us, which was that mortality in group B was higher than that in group C. But of course, the mortality in group D was the highest, and group A was the lowest. And I think for mortality, it is interesting that in group B, there was a lot of mortality from comorbidities, in particular cardiovascular disease and cancer. And I think we can come back to that later, but it probably signals that a lot of symptoms in somebody with well-preserved lung function should be an indicator that something else might be happening. For exacerbations, I think it was interesting that although we did not see the high rates of exacerbations that you would see if you only saw patients in a clinic, there was a clear distinction between exacerbation risk in groups A and B and in group C and B, which was what you would expect, but also what we could see. And it was clear that for predicting exacerbations, the separation between A, B, and C and D was better than in if you compare the old stage 3 and 4 versus stage 1 and 2. So I think gold has achieved its aim of separating patients according to risk, and you can then subsequently discuss whether that separation is sharp enough. But at least it seems, seems slightly better than the old gold staging procedure from the gold 2006 document. Dr. Messel, I also found the findings of the low-risk, more symptoms group B with a higher mortality than the high-risk, less symptoms group C. I found that surprising as well. And I'd ask for your thoughts about this, and I wonder specifically, and I think we probably don't have enough information to answer this, but I'd like you to express your thoughts, but that finding, does it have any implications for treatment of COPD in this group B, or does it reflect that those sort of more symptoms, low-risk patients need to be worked up aggressively for other non-COPD causes of dyspnea? Yes, well, I think there are two aspects to this. First of all, I certainly think they need to be worked out well. Somebody with well-preserved lung function, spirometry in this case, and a lot of symptoms, they require better evaluation. It could be that they should have body plesiosmography to see the amount of emphysema, because for a given FEV1, the more emphysema, the more breathlessness. It could also be that they should be worked up for comorbidities, and of course, heart failure is an important one. So that's one aspect of it. I think it definitely requires more procedures, more attention to patients with a lot of breathlessness. If we 
then say they do have COPD and that's the main cause for breathlessness, I think there are two things. First of all, we knew from previous studies, and sort of one comes to mind from Dr. Nishimura in Japan, showing that breathlessness is an independent predictor of mortality in COPD. So I think it's probably not surprising as such. Um, it's more the magnitude. But also I think there are data from epidemiological studies that those who decline the most rapidly, especially in milder disease, will have more symptoms, probably because they can sense the deterioration over time. So I think, and subsequent studies will have to evaluate this, that perhaps some of the group B patients are those who are going down the slope very quickly and therefore should be seen perhaps more frequent and should be offered testing so that we know whether they are going down the slope, they should receive more intensive smoking cessation and should probably be treated more aggressively in order for them to maintain their physical ability, their exercise capacity and so on. So I think there is a definite signal here that we should take seriously. Dr. Hurst, I'd ask for your thoughts on the study findings in general and specifically about this aspect of higher mortality in Group B compared to Group C. I think it's really key because you're identifying a high-risk group for mortality. And if you can identify a group, then that's the start of a long process, which means that you might be able to understand a little bit about the underlying pathophysiology, which means that you might be able to institute better treatment and therefore to reduce that mortality. So this is, this is really interesting. The key thing here, of course, is the mechanism. You know, it's really tempting to think that this additional breathlessness is, for example, a cardiac disease. I mean, that's a really tempting hypothesis, but it remains unproven. But I think it does bring us to the point that actually most patients with COPD don't die from their COPD. They die from comorbidities, and that's particularly cardiovascular disease and lung cancer. And therefore, it's quite possible that these two uh, groups of conditions are responsible for these symptoms. So at the very least, I think what we can do is being alert and uh, cognizant that this group is at high risk. It means that perhaps we should be thinking very carefully about the cardiovascular risk of this group of patients and assessing and treating that according to the best evidence-based guidelines that we have, and also being alert to symptom changes uh, that may reflect, for example, the first stages of uh, thoracic malignancy, so that we can again try to improve the outcomes in this important group with the poor outcomes. I think these findings are really important, really interesting. Dr. Hurst, I'd ask you what you thought were some of the limitations of this study. Uh, this is a really well-conducted study. We've touched on the issue of spirometry earlier on and, you know, the pragmatic approach to these large epidemiological studies is, of course, that pre-bronchodilator spirometry is used. Um, and the second comment I think I've had has also been touched on by Jürgen earlier on, and that's in relation to exacerbations. So although we are picking up in this study exacerbations which uh, are severe enough to require the use of antibiotics and corticosteroids, uh, then there are a proportion of events which may well be very important to patients, but which are milder and which are responding, for example, to an increase in dosal frequency of short-acting bronchodilators. So it's not capturing all exacerbation events. And again, that's impossible in this sort of analysis. So the, the study has been done very well with the data that's been available, but we need to just be aware that the methodology used inevitably has those kind of limitations. We shouldn't retract from the results. So Dr. Vespo, I'd ask you now that you know, you've reviewed your findings and looked at the updated goal classification. I think it must have provided you a great deal of information. And the question is always, you know, where do we go from here? How do we go forward? And so I was wondering what your thoughts were in terms of the updated goal classifications and you know, what we do now in terms of future trials of patients with COPD and, and even impacting the current treatment of our COPD patients? 
First of all, this revision has created a lot of debate, discussions about how we evaluate patients, and I think that's good for COPD. I think there's always a risk if you stick to the same rules all the time, that sometimes you get slightly blind when you should change tack. And I think we have been sticking with the FEV1 as being the only parameter for slightly too long. I don't think that we have necessarily found the completely correct way of classifying patients using the goal 2011, but we're taking a starting point which will hopefully lead to a better and slightly more detailed evaluation of patients. And I think perhaps not so much for specialists, but for generalists, this brings back to their minds that patients' symptoms matter and that they should think ahead on future risk for the patient. So I think this concept of thinking symptoms, future risk, and having sort of lung function as the underlying disease parameter for airflow limitation is a concept that we can take forward. What I think the classification itself has done in going to a group A, B, C, and D instead of just classifying according to FE1 could, if I'm an optimist, be the first step towards slightly more personalized medicine. That we do not say one size fits all. We may not be nearly detailed enough, but I think what we need to go further are new studies that test whether specific phenotypes should be managed differently. There's no reason for doing a more detailed assessment if we cannot translate it into different management using evidence base that is sufficient. So I think this is the first step towards a more detailed, slightly more personalized assessment of patients, but it's only the first step. And I usually say this may be completely wrong, then it's not the first time that I've been working on something that was not completely correct, but the debate is definitely a very fruitful one. And those who were at the most recent respiratory congresses this year will have seen the debate. People coming with their data showing how it works in their cohorts or their patient groups, and I think that's interesting, that we get better insight and we can then work on this, and hopefully the next revision will be different, will be more detailed, and will be backed by more data. As a final thing, I'll just mention that when we were working on the draft of this goal document, we consulted also with the pharmaceutical industry for one specific purpose. We asked them if we did this assessment, could they do studies based on this? They could. But even more importantly, we asked, would they challenge it? Could they do studies that could actually tell us whether A, B, and C, and D should be separated the way we do regarding symptoms? And would they be able to tease out which of the C1 to D3 have most benefit or least benefit from drugs used? And I think that's the way going forward, because then we can revise based on evidence, and that's my hope for the good future for gold. And Dr. Hurst, I'd ask for your final thoughts regarding the updated gold classification and what we've found in this study. It really relates to the idea that we can identify in a new way a group of patients who are high risk for death and therefore as a final thought I guess it's, it's more of a final plea and that's for us all to 
be to remain holistic in our approach to our patients with COPD. You know, you can be the best COPD doctor in the world, but unless you're thinking about the comorbidities that our patients have and identifying and managing them with the patient appropriately, you're unlikely to uh, impact mortality overall in a significant way. So I guess my message is to be uh, and to continue to be um, holistic with these patients who have a very complex systemic disease with lots of comorbidities. Thank you both for joining me today. In summary, the goal classification is evolving as new data become available. We look forward to clinical studies recruiting patients with a new goal classification to determine whether treatment can be recommended based on the new classification. And we look forward to seeing if some of the new signals suggested by Dr. Lang's study are confirmed in further work. That will bring today's podcast to a close. You can find Dr. Lang's article as well as Dr. Hurst's accompanying editorial in the November 15, 2012 issue of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. A complete archive of the ATS article discussion podcast can be found at thoracic.org or by searching in iTunes for American Thoracic Society article discussions. I'm Nitin Seem for the American Thoracic Society.